Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Rachel, welcome. Hi. It's great to speak to you today. We are remembering wonderful dad, Christopher. You are unusually a prison officer and a singer, which is a great combination. (laughs) Yeah, not the two that really go hand in hand, but it works. Quite handy because I just wanted to begin by remembering your dad through song, through music. You know, obviously very emotive and music brings you to a place and time. There's a number of songs that really remind you of him and for different reasons. I just wondered whether you'd like to sort of elaborate a bit on that and if you feel in the mood you might give us a line <laughs> from a couple yeah, of those songs. Do. <laughs> um yeah so obviously growing up I was always singing so uh when we didn't go on like family holidays anything like that my dad was that dad that would go to the DJ and say you know my daughter can sing can you let her sing he was every DJ's nightmare basically even when we went abroad tapes back then he would take like karaoke tapes so that he could give them to the DJ and moving obviously on onto CD he'd have my karaoke CDs with him so that he could hand them in and try and get me up singing so the song that I always sang as a, as a child was True Colours by Cindy Lauper I just remember it being one of the CDs one of the albums that he had that and Alanis Morissette maybe not age appropriate for somebody that's like seven or eight but um the Alanis Morissette Jagged Little Pill album was like one of the first albums that I remember was listening to so that brings like some really I don't know it's like bittersweet memories really because before he died Alanis Morissette was going on tour and I thought oh that'd be a really nice night out for me and him and then obviously Covid hit and obviously the inevitable happened so I never bought tickets kind of kind of glad really because that would have been a really difficult concert to go to without him but then another song which is not very well known when I was really really young I went to watch Tom Jones with my mum the support no it wasn't Tom Jones I tell a lie it was Jimmy Nail and the supporting artist was a, a country and western singer from America called Dina Carter. And she sings a song called Are You Coming Home? My dad was an electrical engineer, so he was away a lot, like all, all of my childhood. He was away for kind of like chunks of time, just, just working away on jobs because they were so far away, it was easier for him to stay there rather than keep, you know, commuting home. So one of the songs kind of talks about like the father being away and the child obviously wanting the, the father to come back. So I'll sing it for you. It's a bit early, but um <laughs> says, um, Daddy, are you coming home to play with me today? After all my chores are done and I put my toes away. Mama says I'm almost grown, but how time slips away. Daddy, are you coming home today? The lyrics to it are beautiful. The main story through the song is that it's an absent father, but it was just always a song that kind of hit home because he was always away and we were always waiting for him to come home on a Friday so that we could do stuff as a family the weekend. So that song now I find really difficult to to listen to. It's a beautiful rendition. You've got a really soulful voice. Oh, thank you. You mentioned Alanis Morissette. Are there any sort of lyrics many of those songs that I mean I think the whole album just strikes a chord with me Uh, I think the main song everyone knows from that album is Ironic by you know that's the main kind of popular song from that 
but I sing that in my gigs every week now. Give us a few lines. Uh, Mr. Played safe, was afraid to fly. He packed his suitcase and kissed his kids goodbye. It's just oh, a very well-known song. Fantastic. Sort of almost comes to life really through song for you. Yeah, I was once travelling. This is after he passed away and I was back, obviously back at work and I was working in, in Leeds at the time. I was travelling. There's, there's the house in the middle of the motorway. If you're from the north, you'll know where I mean. I think it's the M62, I think it is. And as you're heading north, there's a little farmyard and the motorway splits in two and and obviously each each direction of the motorway is on the separate side of the farm. But you come to kind of like a crest um, on the hill and it had been raining um, so that traffic was was terrible. And literally as I come to the crest of the hill, I was listening to heavy metal at the time. I've got a very broad taste in music and I was listening to heavy metal and um, it was just on shuffle on a random playlist on, on Amazon or Spotify. And as I come over the crest, it was like there was a break in the clouds and the sun was just literally shining through. The next song that came on was my dad's funeral song. And it was the most, I just burst into tears. It was just, I don't know. It was like, I know some people don't believe in God. I believe in God. I thought if at any moment, I don't know, it'll mean nothing to anyone else. But because he worked away a lot, when I've travelled with work and been working across different places, going on training courses, I always rang him in the car because he would nine times out of ten also be driving so that's when we catch up and he'd always say oh I'm at the house in the middle of the motorway like you know for like a reference point as to how far he was from home and it was just the most surreal experience the fact that at that moment in time the most random playlist and his song his funeral song was um David Bowie it was nothing to do with like heavy metal so why it came on at that particular time with the weather and it was just I just burst into tears I can't even describe the feeling it it just made me think, you know what? Yeah, he's still there. He's still watching. Wow. Thank you. What was what was the Bowie song? Oh, God, I can't think of the title. It's the one that opens up with the guitar solo. Ziggy, I can't think of the words. Ziggy play guitar. Is it Spiders from Mars or something like that? That's in the yeah. lyric. But yeah, that was like, he was a massive Bowie fan. That's one thing we didn't really agree on. It wasn't my taste in music, that, but um, yeah, he was a huge Bowie fan. Fantastic. So what was Christopher like as a person and as a father? Everyone will always say they've got the best dad in the world or the best mum in the world. But he was such a good role model in, in terms of like what he wanted from us in life and what he instilled in us. So he, from being small, as I said, he was always working, always working away, even up to like, obviously, until he sadly, obviously COVID hit and then he died. For a man his age, he was still doing, you know, 60, 70 hours a week because if he condensed the hours down, it meant he got home sooner. So like, he he's such a family man. He loved nothing more than having us all together on a Sunday, sat around the table at my mum's having a, a Sunday roast, true Northern style, you know, loads of gravy. <laughs> and then um, that was just kind of, that that's still that's still our thing, you know. Even though he's not here now, that's still something that we try and do as a family. We still try and do events together. And I've got two brothers. Me and my brother have got children now, so it just that that kind of legacy is still continued. You know, we all I would say we're all quite hardworking. I work shift work. You know, my brother works in a school. He's got quite a good job in his school. My other brother, he actually works for the company that um, my dad worked for. They offered him a job um, after my dad passed away 
So he's working for that same company, doing doing the same job, traveling around the country. And it's just, um, yeah, I think that's one of the main things that if anyone ever asked me, like, I don't think there's any any dad in the world that worked as hard as him. You know, he gave my mom and he gave us such a, a comfortable, nice life. And it's kind of that's rubbed off on us all. We, we all want that kind of lifestyle. Wonderful. In terms of the values that he st- instills in you all, so hard work, family. Yeah, I think I think definitely, like I say, the hard working, but I was very close with my dad. Like I would say, when I lived at home, me and my mum never really got on. I moved out quite at a young age and it was almost like I was on a piece of elastic every time my relationship broke down and moved back in with her. When I didn't live there, me and my mum got on fine. <laughs> and when I moved back in, it, that's when it all went to pieces. But I don't know. I just was a daddy's little girl. So I always felt that kind of, what's the word? Not not trust, but I just felt that I could be completely honest with him. And, and if I had any problems, it was better to be, you know, open and honest and lay your cards on the table because you were never going to, you were never going to solve it any other way kind of thing. So he was just, he was just very, very loving, you know, even, even at uh, I can't remember how many years has it been now. So even at the grand age of like, well, 34, still cuddle up on the couch with him. You know, if we were around at my mum's at a weekend and we were watching something on telly, he'd he'd sit on his like recliner side of the couch and I'd just still like lie on him, you know. It doesn't really matter, you know. And, and that's not weird to me because that's just the family we were. We were all like really, really close. People probably find that strange, but we were just a very open family. we talk about absolutely anything at the dinner table that would probably shock people but yeah and and we still are now so that's kind of it's kind of continued that's lovely did you have nicknames for each other no no not really it's it's strange you know because as I grew up and everyone got mobile phones you know I always remember my friends they'd bring the parents and they'd be like you know I'll be home at this time and somebody would hang up and they'd go like yeah bye love you and that that was never a thing for me and my family which I don't know why, if that makes sense. It was almost like we didn't need to say it because we all knew that we loved each other. But as I got older and as I had my own son, I now say to my child all the time, you know, I love you. You know, if he's going anywhere, bye, I love you. Um, And as I got older, like it did become a thing. You know, I felt it was really important. I should tell him I love him because I noticed that everyone else did it at the end of a phone call. But I remember as a kid, like that wasn't a thing for us. It was only as we got older, and I think as you see other people in your life saying that, you feel like, oh, okay, well, I need to say that now. And I'm glad I did, if that makes sense. Are there any sort of standout memories for you, funny or sad, cherished now? He was, as I say, a great dad. But if it wasn't dad's way, it was the highway kind of thing. We've got a couple of funny stories, I suppose. So we have Bean Gate in our house, and we still refer to it. <laughs> I don't, it probably might not be funny to other people. You probably had to be there. But... um. My dad was making tea and I remember my mum and dad's house was like the YMCA, you know. Everyone dropped in, friends, family. You never nearly needed to ring before. You still don't. You just rock up. Everyone's got a key. You just, you know, you just go in and wait until they come home. This particular time, I remember we were all there. My brothers, I think, partners at the time. My cousin, I remember being there. It was just a proper full house. Dad's making tea. Something dead basic like gammon and chips, you know. He made great chips in the chip pan. You always wanted my dad's chips out of the chip pan. I remember him saying, going around everyone, do you want beans, do you want beans, do you want beans? We were all like, a few of us said yeah, a few said no. I can't remember why, but he put like one can of beans in for the amount of people that said yeah. And I said, you're going to need more beans than that. Like, you're gonna, you, you might as well put, and he was like, well, there's no more canned beans. My mum had bought 
the microwavable ones in the plastic like containers because she used to take them to work. So he was like, no, no, you can't. I said, just tip them out and put them in the pan with the same beans. And he was like, no, no, we'll, we'll have enough with this can. And he wouldn't listen. So at the, I think as, as of like a punishment, I think me, me and all my brothers, we we just laughed at him because he won't be told if he's got if he's got something in his head, he, you know, he wouldn't be told. Basically, by the time everyone else had helped themselves to the beans, there was no beans for my dad, and he was <laughs> furious, like absolutely furious, because then he had to have the microwave or beans, which he didn't want, and he ended up literally not eating his tea. And I think if I remember rightly, he actually went upstairs to bed. But we all called it being gate in our house because he literally spat his dummy out, you know. Wouldn't be told. But as I said, that's how stubborn he was. He was just so stubborn with certain things. But yeah, we even now when we're cooking tea, we always say like, have you got enough beans? So we don't have bean gate in our house again. Oh, I but, love I love the bean gate story. It's brilliant. Yeah. Just dad sounds like quite the character. Oh yeah. I think he was very well known in his in the company that he worked for with the guys. Like I think he had a little bit of a reputation. What that reputation was, uh, I don't know whether he was he's known for being a bit of an arsehole, should I say, but um, but he did have a little bit of a reputation. He was strict, but he wasn't, if that makes sense. I can't even describe it. They were very free with like our kind of growing up. I mean, I wouldn't probably let my child stay out till 10 o'clock now I mean I wouldn't let him out because he's only five but when I was younger you know as you got older it was you'd come home when the street lights came on and then as I got a bit older it was well as long as you're home for 10 o'clock and they were very trusting that way you know they wanted us to have our independence and and I would say it's definitely work because we, we all have so yeah tell me how your dad fell ill so it was really I mean, it was a strange time for everyone. Obviously, COVID hit in March. I remember where I was because me and my husband, we have a caravan and we were actually away in the caravan at the time. And we were meant to be staying. It was Mother's Day the weekend before lockdown. And we'd gone away for Mother's Day. Obviously, we were on site and the, and the site manager was saying, like, look, lock, it looks like lockdown's actually happening. You can stay till Monday, but the, fa- the facilities will be switched off. It'll just be a matter of packing up and leaving but because we knew lockdown was happening we actually traveled back on the Sunday so that we could see like families and stuff so we literally drove packed up that morning and and drove home so we could see family I at the time was working as like a trainer training new officers and I got recalled from that because of the way prisons work and uh, obviously the very enclosed spacing in in certain jails in in terms of like the living situation for prisoners they recalled anyone that was on sort of like a secondment um to like the front liners if you will so boots on ground so I got recalled back to my establishment to work in the jail because Everything changed. We couldn't let prisoners out of their cell. Very similar to how you had to bubble at home. Units had to bubble as a family in, in small small units. And the way we served food, the way we issued medication to prisoners, all the things that we kind of take for granted that you can just nip to the doctors, put your prescription up, all of that is very different in jail. So obviously they needed more people. My mum actually works in the prison as well. So not as an officer at the time. Her job role changed as well. So there was there was she was in work. So although everyone everyone forgets about prison service staff, we refer to ourselves as the forgotten service in terms of like emergency services. When all the discounts were coming out during COVID, if you remember, you know, police and ambulances and you know, nurses, obviously they got everything, but we were all still working during COVID and everyone kind of forgot that. And it just doesn't matter. We just had to carry on you know so we were at work I don't know if you remember but in the summer 
kind of restrictions eased a little bit. My dad had gone back to work in that summer period and we were, again, we were still all working where we needed to work. I fell ill first, if I remember rightly. I started with symptoms first. I was in going to Birmingham for some training and I felt, felt awful. And I remember saying to the girl that I was doing some training with, I'm going to have to leave early. I really don't feel very well. I don't think I'll make the drive. So I drove home early. I remember sitting on my stairs when I got home crying because I just felt so rubbish. And my husband was like, right, well, we need to see you for a test. And then we didn't have the the test that we have now. So you have to go for the drive through. And that came back positive. And then my mum and dad were doing my shopping because obviously we were all stuck in our bubble. And my dad, I remember my dad dropping my shopping off on my doorstep and then ringing me from the car. So only a matter of like a driveway away, if that makes sense. But um, and he, he was saying like, so I came out, got my shopping and we were, we were shouting from one another, you know. And then it was like a few days later, I think they started getting ill. I don't know if my mum tested positive first and then my dad shortly like became ill and then he tested positive. But my dad, um, both my mum and dad are ex-smokers, but my dad's always, ha- always had like, um, I say a chesty cough. He didn't have any illnesses. Like he, There was nothing wrong with him, but he always, always cleared his throat, if that makes sense. So whenever he got a cold or flu, even in the history, like even in the past, he always really struggled to shift it. I always remember if he got a cold, or flu he would literally lie in bed for days and just sweat it out he he always talked about that was the only way he could shift it and my mum had said he'd been in in like in bed for a few days and I I think it must have been only about three or four days he actually said to my mum I I don't feel very well and I I don't this this isn't normal this isn't I don't feel right so they called I think she I don't know she called 999 I think she called like 111 first and then they sent a first responder. So the first responder came in and did some like observations on him. They said to my mum, like the waiting time for ambulances was a long time. And that if she could drive him, he would be better getting to, it'd be quicker for him. And he just said that he could hear a crackle on my dad's lungs. Basically, he just needs to go in, get some antibiotics and fluids inside him and he'll be home. And literally that's how my mum basically said it to us. My mum said, oh, she re-, like kind of like her last memories of him is that day when she dropped him off so literally she she bundled him up in this he had this dressing gown this navy blue dressing gown and like the way she described it I can picture it myself she said he literally walked himself into A&E she was still in the car outside and he got out of the car at like the drop-off zone yeah in his dressing gown with his phone and his phone charger in his hand like that's pretty much all he had and she just remembers like that's the last kind of like image of him being upright if you will now what day was that I think that was the Friday and then we all just thought kind of even though we'd seen it on the news we all just thought that exactly what the first responder said you know he will be going in and getting a bit of you know help fluids antibiotics whatever and he'd be, he'd be straight out. That's literally what we all thought, you know, this big, strong guy that our hero, if you will. Yeah, well, COVID, COVID's not going to get him. And I, I honestly believe that we were that blind to it, but like we just did not expect like the following few days. So literally we got a phone call. He was on the like hood. So they had this big blow up hood. Uh, he actually screenshot us a picture of it. So we had that on for a few days. Now I'd seen that before because previously my husband has been quite poorly and not with COVID and I'd seen the same like contraction and that's like um it almost like forces air into your lungs so I'd seen it and it didn't it didn't scare me because I'd seen it before and my husband and he survived from his ordeal so 
I just thought exactly the same. And then I remember I was in work on the Tuesday and I came out of work. Now, when you work in prison, you can't have a mobile phone on you. So we had to arrange like FaceTimes and we did family FaceTimes with my dad. And it's just really hard to hear him because of the airflow thing that he had on. But we, we did that over the weekend. And then by, I think it was the Tuesday I was at work and I came out. And um, my mum was off work, obviously, with my dad being poorly. And she'd rang me and said, oh, the hospital have rang and they think that your dad needs to go on a ventilator. Now, all I'd seen in the news from that point was that if you went on a ventilator, you weren't coming off it. And she said, but they've said that they'll let us FaceTime tonight and they're planning on putting him on the ventilator tomorrow. So we have to make sure that we're all on this call tonight. And I was like, right, okay, that's fine. And I think even at that point, I didn't think like the worst would happen. Sorry. And we went to FaceTime him on the Tuesday evening and um, he didn't answer. So my mum rang the hospital to see what was happening and um, they'd already put him on the ventilator. Without your knowledge? Yeah. So they said they were going to do it on the Wednesday and they didn't. They actually did it on the Tuesday. So we never got to have that like last conversation with him. So that's kind of like a really hard thing for me is the fact that I know the title is still in goodbyes, but that literally was taken away from me. Because I think at that point, even though I did think he was going to get better, I would have been able to say everything I wanted to say. They robbed you of that opportunity, really. Yeah, we even now, like, we don't know why it happened earlier than it was planned. I appreciate his health might have deteriorated and he needed that assistance, but the fact that we weren't even told that that was happening, that for me is, like, a really difficult thing. The fact that I didn't get to have that last conversation or my mum didn't get to tell, you know, tell him that she loved him one last time, I know he knew it. I think for me, I, I wanted to thank him. I just wanted to say thank you for the upbringing that we've had you know we've been very lucky and I think that would have been my main and that I I was proud to have him as my dad they're the things that I would have told him not just that I loved him that I was so proud to be his daughter and that I I was thankful for everything he'd given us and the hard work that he'd done and what he provided you know he was such a provider I think that's why we've told him. So after he went on the ventilator, that's kind of like the start of the end, really. That was on the Tuesday. So at that point, I then went off work because obviously you're just expecting the worst then, I think. And one of the consultants obviously rang us on the Friday. And I'll never forget the phone call. She rang my mum and I was with my mum at the time. So at that point, I actually moved into my mum's house. And we kind of then said to our family, we're going to bubble together. People can say that they they weren't the rules, but we made an agreement that we would just bubble as one family. So I think we kind of knew what was what was coming because of the news. We kind of bubbled as like a group of I think what is the eight of us now? Yeah, seven of us. So we we just did one big bubble. But I'd actually moved into my mum's house, so she wasn't on her own with my son. And my husband was 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 kind of flitting between the two because he was working from our office at home. Anyway, on the Friday, we got a phone call. I was with my mum. I remember we were sat in the front room. She had her phone on loudspeaker. And um, I just remember the consultant saying that basically once they're on the ventilator, what they do is they kind of turn the amount of oxygen that the ventilator is giving them down to see if they can wean them off the ventilator. And then if their like, oxygen levels remain the same, that shows that there's some sort of improvement. And they tried to do it with my dad Um 
and he couldn't like with uh, what's the word like sustain that amount of oxygen without the um without the ventilator breathing for him she basically just said so that ultimately means that chris will die and that that, that were his words that he is he is going to die i just swore i just swore at her i just said no i said i don't effing believe it like I don't, I don't effing believe you. You're wrong. You're wrong. Like, he won't die. He's, like, he's stronger than that. He won't die. She basically said that that's, that's not the case. He will. And that they wanted to give my mum the opportunity to go up and see him before he died. And that two people could go. And my mum said, that's not fair. She said, I've got three children and you're asking me to pick one of my tra- children that can come and see the dad. Like, that's not fair. So we rang everyone, rang my two brothers, and we made a decision that we were all going to go and they'd have to deal with it. Good for you. And we, and we did. <laughs> we all got in the car. I think my husband drove us. We all got in the car and um, we drove up to see him that evening. The, I said the funny side of the story is there was actually a prisoner in the bed opposite my dad and even though he was on a ventilator they still had um, officers from my prison on guard and the really kind thing that they did is that they actually almost like dismissed the officers for that period so that we could actually have some privacy because they would have been staff that me and my mum knew so the, the governor had actually the jail were aware and the governor had, had actually made them scarce if you will for that period that we visited and I remember seeing them walking along the corridor when we were sat in the family room which a very small thing to some people that was a huge thing it meant a huge thing to my family so yeah and we went on the Friday day we went and said we we rose to around his bed and let all four of us round of his bed and uh, I just remember his skin being ice cold it was really really cold the only illness my dad had should you say should I say was he had really bad psoriasis and it was all kind of like up his like arm up his arm and he always got it bad on his knees you know being on his like knees at work and stuff and I just remember looking at his arms we noticed that all his psoriasis had gone like it was almost like it had healed itself like the scarring was still there I remember my mum pulling back his sheets and looking at his knees and that was the same it was almost like he'd needed a good rest and like just not being at work not having the stress of daily life and I suppose as I said it was that provider not having them kind of that life and and that weight on his shoulders just being asleep or whatever, it was almost like it had healed itself. It was really strange. Anyway, we said goodbye. And the consultant said at that point, they weren't going to remove him off the ventilator. They were going to give him a couple more days and just see how he went on. I was really grateful for. And then, um, so we left. We said our goodbyes at that point. We thought that would be the last early hours Sunday. Well, middle of the night, Saturday, Sunday morning, we got a phone call. Remember, I was at my mum's. I was actually... We were sleeping in her bed and her phone rang and she didn't hear it. I I heard it, so I answered it and woke my mum up. Again, the consultant said, like, this is the this is the time. Like basically when your body I know probably lots of people correct me on this, but the way I interpreted it was that when your body is starved of oxygen, your organs start to shut down because they can't work. So as as he wasn't getting enough like oxygen through like into his lungs and through, that eventually you don't die from like like lack of oxygen, you die from kind of like organ failure. Um and I think they'd kind of seen that there wasn't enough oxygen, even with the ventilator wasn't getting through like your 
your lung walls, whatever they're called. And they must have noticed that that was kind of like going to be the next step. So they'd said basically that they wanted to remove them off the ventilator so that he could almost like pass away a bit more peacefully. And they said, if you want to come up. So we did get a second opportunity to go up to see him. We rallied everyone together and I think we were there within the half an hour. But that particular time, they only allowed two people around the bed at a time. So me and my brother went in and that kind of, because we'd already done it, it was kind of like, but we knew that this was definitely the end. It was a bit more emotional, I think. I just remember looking at the nurses and the nurses being like so young. They were, they looked like children. I know that sounds daft, but they were all younger than me. How old am I? Gosh, yeah, like 34, 35. I just remember looking, thinking like, these are kids. They, they must still be in the training. And these are the people that are having to not only look after these people that are seriously ill, but listen to us. I was wailing like proper wailing crying and I just think how do they get over that you know seeing all them people say goodbye it must be terrible so I went in with my younger brother and then we'd made the decision that my brother would stay with my mum while they my older brother would stay with my mum while they turned obviously his his machine off because they'd said that there can be some not very nice reactions that you know he could start seizing or he could you know, there could have been lots of horrible things, which I didn't want to see. But my brother obviously didn't want to leave my mum on her own. So, yeah, they were present. And that felt like an eternity waiting in that room for them to come in and say it's done. And, yeah, that, that was it. That was the end, really. And then I suppose what followed was just, it doesn't go away because you're still like the funeral. Then you find out at the time you were only allowed to think 15 people for somebody that's... You know, he was he was in the Masonic Lodge. He, um, you know, he worked. He had colleagues. We had, you know, aunties and uncles and relatives. And so then, after handpick the the chosen few that could attend, it's just no one should have to go through that. No one should have had to go through that. They were the worst days following because you just feel like it's just empty. You can't. People want to come round. They want to hug you. They want to. They want to pass on their condolences. They can't. They can't do it. You know what is our human reaction? What is a normal reaction for for most people is to, you know, surround you with love and compassion. That's gone. You know that doesn't happen. You know we were literally sat in my mum's house, like the seven of us, like with the kids as well. And you're just like, this. This is it. This is all we're gonna get. It was just, just horrible. It just. I don't think anyone that has had maybe a funeral since or before you take it for granted you know having that around you because that's a normal reaction but when that's taken away from you I do you think it's like it's traumatic it is a traumatic period that you go through it still is you know I think certain things when you do start talking about it and I can talk about my dad normally. I can talk about our lives. When you start talking about the little individual segments of his illness and then afterwards, it does, it's very difficult. Loss to COVID-19 has been described as a loss like no other. Very complicated grief because yeah. these death rituals, you know, that we have taken for granted, saying goodbye having a funeral, seeing the body, dressing the body, a memorial. So many people didn't have those things. And I think that's the thing that complicates the grief and then also has given many COVID bereaved this feeling that the loss of a loved one is somehow not real, that it didn't take yeah. place, that it feels like a dream, irreal, but also sort of it's in some way delegitimized too. Have you had those feelings that Dad's loss has been surreal? 
And if so, when impacted you or hit you? I think for me, it almost felt like because he worked away so much, you just felt like we were waiting for him to come home. And that's still a thing for me because he worked, he was very good in his field, you know, what he did for a living. He travelled to Mexico, Canada, Thailand. He travelled all over the world with his job. So some periods he were gone for like three months. He never really worked away for longer than three months without coming home. That three month marker was like a massive thing because, I just remember getting to like February, March and that's when it hit me because it's like, oh, you know, he isn't coming home. And um, I think that's that's when it, it kind of triggered for me because that's when I would have usually seen him by then. And like little things, like I say, it felt like our life just got put on pause. You're driving in your car and something happens and or something's happening. I always drive my dad in my car and I'd just literally go to phone him. And I, I did. I remember where I was. I was near a leisure centre. I think I was on the way to work. I went to ring him. I actually, like, the phone was ringing. And I just think, like, because you do just feel like they're just away somewhere and he's going to walk through the door. It affects my mum and dad have a dog. And that poor dog, I tell you, it, it's like he's suffered more than at most because everyone's says that animals have like this instinct my mum lives right by the m6 motorway he go and lie by the front door and no word of a lie about three minutes later my dad would walk through the door it's like he could hear him coming off the motorway that's what we always said he knew when my dad got to the turning on the m6 and he was coming off the motorway because that's when the dog would get up and go lie by the door he'd be like oh dad must be coming and it was strange he waited it was like he was waiting for months and months afterwards he's the most miserable dog now it's like like he's still waiting for him to come home I think yeah you do feel like it's it's not real because little things like we packed clothes we picked an outfit these stupid red shoes that we all hated but he loved he used to wear these red like loafers my, 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 both my parents were very well dressed you know they like they like the labels and the brand specifically my dad you know he did like to have nice gear because he spent his life in like work stuff so when he dressed in his own clothes he wanted to be nice kind of liked him I suppose they were like bright red loafers like leather or suede not like a suede suede leather god he wore them on holiday he wore them like anytime like it was slightly dry outside he'd have these shoes on but he'd wear them with like they didn't match whatever he was wearing he'd just like these red shoes but we obviously he was in the masonic lodge so we wanted to dress him in like a nice suit because he had some very nice suits so we dressed him in like a full kind of like morning suit if you will like a dress dress suit so he had a nice i think it was a dress jacket so we packed like a really nice shirt and a suit because we all laughed because my dad was really really short he was quite quite a stocky guy but he was really really short so my mum was like nobody will want his suits like at kind of like at the charity shop because there'll be nobody the same shape as me <laughs> shape as him so she's like I might as well bury him in a nice suit so we buried him in this nice suit with these red loafers <laughs> they were the shoes that we put in and we always laugh because I think god if he actually you know if he could communicate with us now he'd be like what the, what the hell do I look like kind of thing it, I suppose it made us laugh but like we handed in these clothes and like we don't even know if they dressed him in him in my head I'm like well, yeah, I think he got dressed in them. And in, like, that's, like I say, I always think all in the afterlife, he's, if he's wearing his suit, he got buried in, like, he's going to have these red shoes on. But did that suit actually go on him? Because everything was different with COVID. I know we couldn't see him in the coffin. I don't even know if they did dress him because I know that the morticians and everything had to be very done very differently. Like, that was kind of almost like explained to us that it wouldn't be the usual kind of thing and I remember going to see him and sit with him in his coffin and previously when I've lost my grandma I found it really like it's a word cathartic I found it almost like it was just nice to sit with her even though I know it's not for everyone but I sat with her and held her hand and it was kind of like it is that closure moment 
that you've got that she looked really for somebody who was dead <laughs> she looked really really nice and she had a nice dress on and we'd buried her with like some of the knitted teddies that she had and a knitted blanket it just it was it's that closure that, that they're off that the that she wasn't in pain or whatever I look back and that was actually it's a good memory for me my dad you don't have that, that moment that you can think actually you know that you can talk to them or it's strange because then you start questioning everything you start questioning was he even inside that box, you know? It's weird. I do think he was, but when you have your moments of madness, you just question everything about the whole thing. If COVID was so bad and you couldn't touch people and, you know, after death, you know, why did cremation happen? You start asking yourself all these questions about, like you say, the rituals that you all have. We wanted to have a wake. We couldn't have a wake. So at the time, when he died, so he died on the 6th of December, his funeral wasn't actually until the 23rd of December, two days before Christmas, so the worst Christmas of my life. And my mum and dad used to go to a, a really nice like country pub. The two guys that own it, always really friendly. Like My mum and dad loved going there. So when they found out, we'd spoke to them via Facebook and said, like, if we can have a wake, like, can we have it there? Because it just seemed like a good choice. And then I don't know what happened. I think a new rule came in very at that time. So you could bubble or you could be outside. And then it, within that time between the 6th and the 23rd, something changed. And they were told that they weren't allowed to do it. So we, we didn't have a wait. We literally had the immediate family. So we had not even the 15 that came to the funeral. There was me, my two brothers, my mum, all our partners, because we'd bubbled together. My grandma, so my dad's mum was still alive, his two brothers. And we just had sandwiches in the house. And you just think, God, my dad would, he would literally turn in his grave at that because he was flashy, you know. He liked he liked expensive meals, expensive champagne, nice nice food, nice clothes. Like, we were literally sat with, like, a platter of sandwiches. No proper weight. You didn't get to see his body. It was a closed coffin. You were robbed of the goodbye. Even down to like the crematorium which it sounds daft but in future I think I won't use you because you were so strict during Covid but we asked if anyone wanted to pay their respect to line our street a cul-de-sac off an estate so we said to people if you want to line just like my mum and dad's road down to like the exit like safely if you want to pay your respects like that would be you know, that would be really nice. And then we'd identified like a car park, like a pub car park on route and said, if there's not a space, we'll be passing this place if you want to park there. And that was so emotional because you came out of the house that morning, literally the streets were covered, you know, from, from my mum's front door all the way to the end of the street. And actually a, a friend of mine, he's actually my manager. He lives on our estate, a friend of my and dad's. And I just remember him stopping traffic, you know, so that the funeral procession could pull out. And then when we got to the pub that we'd pointed out, there was more people. It just shows, like, how many people loved him and how many friends he had. You just think he was, not just for us, but for them people, it was taken away for them as well, you know. They must think that they didn't get to say a proper goodbye. They must feel the same in, in some in some aspect. So although it was really like heartwarming for, for me though to see all those people that they made an effort on such a miserable day, you know, that's one thing that I just, it's like bittersweet really. Very powerful. Yeah. You've said that you watch videos of your dad. After he died. Lost 
real. After he died, I got all of his photographs. I went through my whole photo album, my whole iCloud on, on my phone. And every single photo of my dad, I have saved into an album of dad. It's just, I think it's just my way of, if I'm having a moment or... Because I'll be honest, this last 12 months, it's probably been a handful of times where I've actually thought, well, oh, I'll just sit and go through photographs. And something will trigger it. And it'll either be like the Amazon Alexas and stuff around the house and the fire sticks. So... Now and again, a photo will come up of my dad and I think, oh, that was a good day. And I'll get my phone out, almost like try and relive that good memory. It's never really like in a negative way. Or oh, my son, he's five. He remembers my dad. So he was like two at the time. He called him Papa. He didn't call him Granddad. It just, I don't know where it came from. That's what he named him and that's what stuck. It, now and again, he will talk about, about Papa and he'll say, he made up this really kind of his way of, I suppose, dealing with it was to say like we explained that he'd he died but the way we kind of did it is he talked about him living in the stars so when my grandma died my husband's granddad henry my son had came up with this idea that they they went to live in the stars like that's where heaven was was in the stars so when when we were explaining it to, to him about about papa we said that you know he'd gone to live in the stars with with, with Grandma Violet and, uh, and Granddad Dennis. And he said, oh, right. And he was, you know, you know what kids are like. He was just so very matter of fact. And he went, oh, right. So he's got in his rocket to the stars and he's going to be with them. And I was like, yeah. And that's that worked for him. That's how he interpreted it. And for a long time, I didn't correct him. And then it, I think it was a, oh, God, I bet it was almost 12 months later, if not if not before, he said something like, when will Papa be coming back in his rocket? And, and then that's when we had to explain that no one should go up to the stars, like, you don't get to come back down, that's it, we won't see him again. And that was almost like another grief grief period because... He, the the kind of realization for him as he got older that that was like another like low point but he understands it now he's five we've explained death a bit more grown up so he knows he he actually he didn't come to the when we buried his ashes so his ashes are in in a grave so when we turned his ashes into the grave like my son wasn't present but as he's got a bit older and he we've explained death more matter of factly he now comes to the grave and he knows that that's where mommy goes to speak to papa and we tell him about our day or about anything in our lives and you know it's it's just it's strange how everyone deals with it i just think before any before he died before my grandma died i never thought i'd be able to be so kind of just get on with my life i never thought you think oh my gosh if if i lost that person i wouldn't live because that's what you genuinely believe you think how would i cope if that person died but you, you do you have to do you have any coping mechanisms anything that you do that makes you feel better i think singing for me because he was always like my biggest support you know always supported me in everything i did when it came to my singing you know when i wanted he drove me all the way to great yarmouth once for a job you know he actually was kind of like my biggest advocate i think so now i just think well yeah that's he loved me singing even if i even if i was the worst singer in the world you know he loved me singing. That's what he liked. He bought you know expensive karaoke machines, expensive microphones. When I started gigging by myself, you know, he helped me out in, in buying all the equipment. And I just think like the equipment that I still have, and it's little things like that. And I just think singing is probably it's probably my way of expressing my emotions. Anyway, I mean, there's certain songs like as I say, True Colors. The other song, Are You Coming Home Today? I don't think I could sing at a gig because I just I would find it too emotional. But I would probably just listen to them at home. <laughs> when we came to do his his funeral music, 
we were like, you know, what what songs would we pick? So I said, oh, why don't we go on his iTunes on his laptop? So we went on his iTunes. We said, it, it, you can choose, it'll tell you like the most played songs and then we'll know what songs he really liked. So obviously, Ziggy Stardust, that's the song. So that was up there. But his number one song was <laughs> Ass Like That by Eminem. Now, he did like Eminem, <laughs> but we were all like, what? Like, obviously, it was just, just the most you know, random song. You know the lyrics? <laughs> no, no. They're quite uh, quite vulgar, to be fair. I was just like, Dad, like, of all the songs you can listen to the most, like, that is it? It's not even a good Eminem song, you know? And I was like, well, we can't have that play when we bring him into the <laughs> bring him into the uh, the crematorium. So like, well, that's how we picked his song. And one of the other songs we had, so we picked Ziggy Stardust. I think that's the one he came into. And then we had uh, Ms. Lopey, J- the JCB song. How does that go? Uh, so it starts off with, I think, and I'm rolling in his JCB, me and my dad and... And it taught it basically it's 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 written from like a little boy's perspective of him being in his dad's JCB and they're going to work and how his dad is a hero. So he talks about his dad being like stronger than BA Baracus and that that the lyrics are very like childlike and how they idolise like your father. And that was in his playlist. But when we were kids and we'd go on jobs with him at a weekend if he was doing a foreigner. Like, that was a song that we would play in his car. Like, I remember it from being little. So we had that as, like, we wanted a song for me and my brothers, you know. So, yeah, so that that that's a nice... It is a nice song, and uh, it's a song that I would uh, would listen to. Wonderful. That's, uh, they're, they're lovely <laughs> recollections. So you mentioned earlier about the COVID-19 lockdown rules changing and them sort of changing, which sort of impacted your goodbye we then found out that while the country was following these strict social rules, that the people in charge who'd made the rules were in fact flouting them. So Boris Johnson and his entourage getting pissed in Downing Street. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine how that must feel given what you've been through, but you did set up a petition. Yeah. Can you explain what that petition was and why why you set it up what happened so i think it was after his funeral after christmas anyone that knows me i've probably got adhd <laughs> like it's in my life if you knew me and how chaotic i've never been diagnosed but i can't i'm very i'll do five jobs at once i'm the same at work i'm always got I'm always doing 10 things at once and massively overcommitting life so even now like I work full-time I'm a mum you know trying to take him to clubs and I'll still be doing gigs and amateur dramatics rehearsing like two three nights a week whatever so I always have to have something and I think the way that kind of like with my ADH I think with like having that kind of trait that after Christmas obviously I was off work and I was at a loss what to do and I just thought right okay there's all these people and every day they on the news every morning they put a new figure out of how many people have died that day and it was just it just dead it was just dead morbid you know like you're trying to move on you're trying to like not move on but you're trying to come to terms with the loss of losing someone and literally oh you're surrounded by the news of just negativity all these people dying i mean partygate which you know just it's just, oh, it's like it's like pouring liquid lava on me. I hate the, that that expression. Yeah, so I was sat in bed one night. I really struggled with like sleeping afterwards, and I was sat in bed in the middle of the night, and then I just started looking at. We we have all these bank holidays, you know. At the time we have bank holidays for the Queen's Jubilee. We have bank holidays for 
you know, people getting married in the royal family. We have bank holidays for religious reasons. And I just think, right, okay, so all these people, like, we have never come across anything like this in in, in our lifetime. So in, in history, you've had, like, the Spanish flu, the bubonic plague, and all these, like, massive things, the war. So the way it came in my head is that I'd marched in the, the cenotaph parade for the prison service. So they have, like, a, a civilian like a, a, a contingent specifically for like St John's Ambulance Prison Service and I, I'd asked to be a part of that and it was I was very proud that day to wear my uniform and I just thought well we have you know have all these people that died in the war so then I started looking at the figures so then I was looking at figures from the war and how many we lost in World War One, World War Two, and I was like right so we have memorial days for all these people that fought for their country and I'm not saying that people that died with Covid are the same as people that died in in battle like I'm, I'm not comparing the two if that, if that makes sense but the loss just the sheer amount of loss from these wars that we had at that point I think we were hitting around that time we were close to like the 100,000 mark mm-hmm. and I was like right so why is no one thinking about all these people that have died like why is nobody thinking about these families that have suffered and about having a moment of like reflection or remembering because ultimately this is in our history books you know kids will be learning about covid in 10 years time when they're sat in the history lessons about this time in the world when the world stopped and another thing for me it was like it wasn't just the uk it was it was everywhere it's it's across the whole globe so why can't we as a nation decide that we remember these people on a specific day so that's where it came from and then I thought right how do you go about doing it just did a bit more research and I'm like a dog with a bone and stuff like this I found the petition website but if you don't use the government parliament petition it won't be discussed in parliament you know started a petition looking back now probably would have reworded it slightly because it got a little bit of Some people didn't quite agree with it because I said a bank holiday. Well, that was just a suggestion. And then I started emailing like my local newspeople, local papers, and it kind of just went from there then, really. And I think that was a massive way of me expressing how I felt and getting through that difficult time over the next couple of months. I had a focus. It was a coping strategy then, get active. Gave me something to do, the the Mm -hmm. stuff that I was reading up on and, you know, facts and figures. And every day I'd I'd literally, because I was doing Skype calls, I was on Russian TV asking me to do an interview and got quite a bit of interest. So every day I was making sure I had the right figures and, and I just felt like, do you know what? My dad didn't get his funeral, but people in Russia have seen my dad's photo that never even knew him. Like, he didn't get the funeral he deserved, but I'll make sure that people know who he was and what a, what a wonderful person he was. And in a way, that was kind of like my personal... It, it wasn't about that in the beginning, but now I look back at it and I think, yeah, well, all those people saw my dad. All those people know who he was and he didn't get a send-off, but I tried. I tried for him and for thousands of others. And do you know what was wonderful during it all was that I got so many emails so many emails, so many Facebook messages from complete strangers across the world basically thanking me for what I was trying to achieve. I had so many stories. Other people's stories were, you know, even worse than mine. Stories that I heard, you almost kind of feel a bit more blessed about the whole situation. So that experience has helped your well-being. I'm just uh, looking at the petition site now. So you were calling for a national holiday and a day of remembrance for those lost in the COVID pandemic. And there's more than, well, there's 10,500 signatures there. 7th of June 2021, the government responded saying, 
We are carefully considering the most appropriate way to remember those who have lost their lives during the COVID-19 pandemic. The government has no plans to create a bank holiday on the 23rd of March. When you started the petition, that was in January 2021, you mentioned that there was more than 78,000 people uh, dead from COVID in the UK, uh, 1.9 million deaths across the world. I mean, that now stands at obviously uh, more than 200,000 deaths in the UK and almost 7 million around the world. Do you feel the government has done anything really to mark that loss? Absolutely nothing. Do you know what sickened me? I think it was, was it last year? And the year before, so Marie Curie, they got in touch with me. So they were looking at doing a National Day of Reflection on the 23rd of March. So they kind of got on, on board with it. And that the way I kind of was doing the petition is I didn't want it to just be for people that had died of COVID because there were lots of people that died during COVID. There were lots of people that didn't get funerals they should have done. And like you say, got to pay their respects in the way that we, we would normally do. And people died of cancer. People died of suicide. It was a horrific time for anybody that lost somebody. So I wanted that ref- day of remembrance to be for everyone, for anyone that struggled during that time. Not even if they had a death, but anyone that's suffering long-term COVID now that's had you know life-altering you know illnesses since. I wanted it to like encompass all of that, which looking back on the petition I would have re- if I now redid it I would reword the petition Marie Curie had done this day of reflection what made me laugh is that the government actually almost took over and tried to say it was their idea so when it came about the national day of reflection on the 23rd of March I took the day off work I paid my own little respect at home I made bacon butties because the smell of bacon reminds me of my dad and the weekend when we went around at the weekend, you know, he always had bacon on. So I made myself a bacon butty that morning, just like my dad would, and like did my own little ritual at home kind of thing. And I think they said the time was 11 o'clock and I sat there at 11 o'clock and I had a beer, a little candle, I had a cry. And that was my way of, of kind of looked at a few pictures, watched a few videos, and that's my way of remembering, and that's what I wanted to do. Now, that first year that they did it, I remember my dad didn't have a headstone, so I didn't go to the grave. The government that day, it was advertised on the news as almost like the government's idea. Like, Boris Johnson at the time, like, made a speech about it being a national day of reflection. I'm like, well, this isn't your idea. Like, you haven't made this, like, a thing. For one, like, Marie Curie is the one that's advertised it. I think they actually advertise it on telly as well, so, you know, like, advert. And and I just think, absolute weasels, do you know what I mean? Like, without swearing, couldn't believe the audacity. Not only that, the response I first got, if, if you actually look at the petition, the first response I got was disgusting. There was no... There was no emo- emotion in it. There was no like, oh, we're sorry for your loss. We appreciate this is a difficult time for people. Like, you know, yeah, it's a tragedy. There was none of that. It was literally like, no, it costs a lot of money for a bank holiday, so F off. And that's pretty much how it read. So I, I appealed it. I was like, I'm not happy. And they actually came back with a second response. So if you click on the petition, there's like two responses. Um and the second response was the same answer. No, we're not going to give you a bank holiday, but, you know, we're really sorry and we're going to look into it. And and I just think, yeah, absolute. See you next Tuesdays is the way I would put it. Like, I just think they're just sick of me. And even now it's like, oh, we're all back to normal. Life's all back to normal. These people, yeah, well, they died. You know, it was a really terrible time, but we've got to move forward. That's all everyone keeps saying. We've got to move on. 
And I'm like, yeah, I agree. For no life, morning, you know, I, I'm a very, a very positive person. I like, I don't like to be surrounded by negativity. I totally agree. But what is the harm in acknowledging for one day out of the year for those people that have really struggled during the pandemic? COVID was a terrible thing. We remember those, those 200,000 people, you know, that however many million people, let's acknowledge that as a government, we fucked up like we did. Like, and this is our way of almost trying to, they could never apologise enough, but they made mistakes. You know, the government made many, many mistakes. The NHS suffered. We are still suffering with the NHS and they're still making mistakes. And I just think, you're not sorry, because if you were sorry, we wouldn't be striking right now. The ambulance service, the nurses, you're not sorry for any of what you did. Because if you were, you would have learned through your mistakes and we wouldn't be in the current NHS crisis that we're in. So for me, I'll be honest, I don't watch the news in the morning anymore because it became like a, I don't watch the news. I can't abide the negativity that the news instills into our generation of the generate our people. I just don't get it. Everything you read on the news is negative. Why do we have to live in a world of negativity? I don't understand. So I don't watch the news in the morning. I stop that. Anything to do with the government, I just think politics is is broken. I'd just like to finish by asking you what your dad's legacy that is, is worthy for him. His legacy is he's left a happy wife, three children, and he's got two grandchildren. And they're just super happy individuals. We're all happy with life. And we all talk about him. You know, we all remember him. You know, he's never gone away. And that is, I think, would be enough for him. As long as we're happy, he will be happy. And I think that that is that just sums him up, that, that he provided that for us. Even though he's not here, you know, we still have his empty chair on the dining table, you know, that now my brother sits in because he's, he's like... The, the head, if you will. Although I wouldn't tell him that to his face. <laughs> I think he's just left a very happy, financially comfortable, great family. We're good people. You know, we are good people. And that's because of him and my mum. So I thank him for that. Brilliant. Thank you. And thank <laughs> you for letting us into your world and sharing those lovely memories. You're welcome. Thanks so much for listening. Please do subscribe and review the podcast if you get a minute. And if you'd like to make a donation, you can do so via the show notes. The price of a coffee would be fantastic. And also please do follow Stolen Goodbyes on Twitter at Rice KMC and under Stolen Goodbyes on Facebook and Instagram. If you'd like to participate, you can email at stolengoodbyes at gmail.com or visit my website www.karen-rice.com. Good luck. <laughs>